welcome to the State of Florida Sports Podcast, presented by the USA Today Network. Here's your host, Tim Walters. For Florida Gators fans, September 3rd just can't get here fast enough. The team is abuzz with the excitement of a new head coach, an electric starting quarterback, and a roster filled with talented players. They'll be tested right off the bat. Florida plays Utah, followed by Kentucky, South Florida, and Tennessee. If they can survive that gauntlet unblemished, it will be a great start to the Billy Napier era. Also new in Gainesville is the USA Today Network's Gainesville Sun Gators beat writer, Kevin Brockway. Kevin joined us in July, and he's already doing great work. Today, he'll introduce himself to the state and drop some Gators knowledge along the way. Hello again, everybody. I'm Tim Walters, and thank you once again for joining me on the State of Florida Sports Podcast, powered by the USA Today Network. This podcast utilizes our Florida Sports Network of beat writers, columnists, and some special guests to bring you up to speed on the most important sports topics. Our Florida Network consists of 17 news sites that encompass the state. We encourage you to subscribe to your hometown newspaper, and of course, this podcast to help support the incredible journalism done by our talented staffs. Kevin Brockway joined the Gainesville Sun just in time to get his feet on the ground before training camp started. He's been going hard ever since. Today, we'll learn a bit more about Kevin and see what type of hope he might give Gator fans. Kevin, welcome to your inaugural visit to the podcast. It's uh, great to be here, Tim, and uh, really excited to... Uh get started with uh, what should be an interesting first season of Billy Napier, right? Absolutely. Well, we're also going to learn a little bit about you here and a bit being new to the beat, but let's start on the field there because, you know, it's been hot. Billy Napier says this past week's practices were going to be, quote, intense. So give us a general overview of the Gators over the past few weeks. Like, how have they looked? Who's been impressive? And what are your impressions? Yeah, well, you know, we do have limited practice time, but uh, they just completed their second scrimmage. And uh, by all accounts, the offense showed some improvement and they needed to because uh, uh, apparently in the first scrimmage there were uh, too many turnovers and penalties to uh, Coach Napier's liking. So it's um, definitely on an upswing offensively in terms of, of their execution and their development. And uh you know, we just had a uh, kind of discussion with him on Sunday and uh, the group press conference, and he's finally getting to the point where he's starting to formulate that depth chart and an idea of uh, what a what a 70 man uh, you know traveling roster would look like on the road. So uh, there still has been a lot of competition, and uh, there's still a lot of positions up for grabs, uh, particularly at running back and the secondary. Um, but uh, I think he's starting to formulate and evaluate and uh, get some answers there. Yeah, we'll definitely be talking about running backs here in a minute. But, you know, first, everybody, they've been chomping at the bit. See what I did there? To see the Gators' new Gators quarterback, Anthony Richardson. You know, he was injured last year when goofing around before the South Carolina game. He was pulled over earlier this year doing his best Burt Reynolds impersonation and Smokey and the Bandit. And so there was some concern there. But are you now seeing as, as... practices get going a more mature Richardson has he learned some hard lessons and how has he looked on the field yeah you know Anthony Richardson is a guy that uh, obviously uh, you discussed some of that and Billy Napier addressed that yesterday in terms of you know him wanting to be a guy that the other players look to uh, as an example as a leader and I think that process is ongoing off the field uh, on the field 
Um, you know, he's been pretty sharp with his throws, and he did have some turnover issues apparently in that first scrimmage that he cleaned up in the second scrimmage. Uh, but he's a guy with immense talent in terms of uh, when you look at the arm strength, uh, when you look at uh, his athletic ability, his size. I mean, he's a really big kid, and he actually looks uh, stronger this year, probably about 240. Uh, but I guess the interesting aspect to that is how much do you run him uh, going into the season uh, because of the injury history? He's had a history of some hamstring problems here and there. And, uh, you know, obviously when, you, when you're going into a league like the SEC where you got a lot of hard hitters, um, how prone do you make a quarterback like him? How many design runs do you use? Um, he's obviously going to be able to scramble out of the pocket, but he is definitely a dual threat guy. Um, it's just, I think, a matter of monitoring that and how much they're going to use him in, in the run game. Because uh, if they can, and if he can stay durable and healthy, uh, that would be a huge aspect to uh, uh, the offense having to account for Anthony Richardson, not just as a thrower, but a runner. Yeah, that's one of the problems with the SEC. It's become so competitive that even when you have an elite athlete, it's hard to out-athlete some of the other teams. So, you know, last year it was cool watching him before games, like doing standing backflips and things like that. You know, a guy six foot four and 240, uh, just an incredible physical specimen. So, you know, you're right. You just got to kind of keep an eye on, on some of those injury problems. But, you know, we mentioned the running backs. You know, you lost two really good running backs in Damian Pierce and Malik Davis. Uh, from last year's squad. So who are we looking at in the backfield now? There wasn't a ton of experience coming back this year. Well, you've got Naquan Wright returning, and he showed some flashes last year, I think, and he's going to kind of emerge as the uh, leader in that room. Um, and then I think they're very high on Montrell Johnson, the transfer from Louisiana, uh, you know, a guy that rushed for about 600, 700 yards last year as, as a freshman at Louisiana uh, that knows the system, that knows Coach Napier, that's dependable. Um, and he's someone that uh, certainly can run the ball hard and with some physicality. And then I think the big X factor is Lorenzo Lingard. Here was a guy that was a five-star recruit coming out of the University of Miami. It didn't pan out from there. He comes here, and he's going to get another opportunity as well. And he's someone that certainly has size, talent, speed, the full package. I think with him, it's just a question of, you know, absorbing a new offense, absorbing a new system, and if he can go uh, and, and do it. And, I, you know, I think in discussing yesterday, and I'm going to write a story on this later in the week, uh, Coach Napier sounds like he's going to kind of do it by committee, uh, where you're going to see that uh, maybe three guys get 10 carries as opposed to having that one feature back that gets 20 carries. So I think the wealth will be spread there, and I think those three guys are going to be the ones that are going to be the main guys to get those opportunities. Yeah, you know, it sounds like it could be another exciting, speedy offense, that's for sure. But, you know, uh, with the SEC, again, it's it's not all about the offense because, as you saw two years ago, with the, uh, you know, Florida's offense with, with Kyle Trask was among the best in the nation. But without that defense there, you know, you just can't compete. So what is the defensive side of the ball looking like? Last year, it was a little bit of a mess under Dan Mullen, especially toward the end. So how is the defensive unit coming together heading toward their first game here with Utah? Yeah, I think that's uh, certainly, you know, worth discussing because of the fact that, uh, you know, under Todd Grantham, there were a lot of struggles in 2020, and it got slightly better in 2021. Uh, you know, Patrick Tony is a young defensive coordinator. He's 31 years old, but he's highly regarded uh, as, as a bright mind. They're going to employ, I guess, what they call the uh, creeper defense, where, um, you know, they're going to be bringing different pressures, uh, sometimes from the defensive backs, sometimes from the linebackers. 
Um, it's going to be a little bit of a different scheme. I don't think it's going to be, you know, bringing the kitchen sink the way, they, you know, Todd Grantham did, but they're going to be very selective in their pressure and disguise it well. And I think in doing that, um, you know, they're hoping that they're going to be able to get to the quarterback. And, you know, personnel-wise, um, obviously you've got, uh, you know, uh, Grivan Dexter, who's a, a very talented guy. You've got Brenton Cox as a linebacker. Uh, that's a, a talented guy, and that's got a little bit of an edge to him. Uh, Ventral Miller is back, um, and he's certainly a guy that they really missed last year from the uh, tackling aspect, and he's fully healthy. So he's a guy in the front seven that's very important. And then, you know, a lot of competition in the uh, in the secondary as well. Uh, but certainly you've got uh, Trey Dean, who's an experienced guy back there at safety, um, and some cornerbacks that are kind of battling it out. Jalen Kimber, Devin Moore, the freshman from Naples has looked very well uh, in camp and uh, is a guy worth watching. So um, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting competition all the way through. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a lot of the players that are returning, whether it be Cox, Miller, Dean on offense, you've got some guys like Justin Shorter, Trent Whittemore. So there's a lot of names, Keon Zipperer that, that Florida fans would know, but who are some guys that may emerge that maybe either weren't stars or transferred in or are freshmen that are going to make an impact? Who are some players that Gator fans should keep their eyes on? Yeah, like I said, you know, Devin Moore, I think, is a guy, like I said, that's very interesting. And um, certainly on the offensive line, the big newcomer is Osiris Torrance, uh, a guy who uh, is, um, you know, was highly regarded out of uh, Louisiana and someone that, uh, you know, is already a first team or SEC without ever taking a snap in the SEC. And uh, Pro Football Focus rates him as one of the 10 best offensive linemen in the country. So he's going to be very interesting on the offensive front to watch uh, at uh, at the right guard spot. He's going to be penciled in there, um, and he's just got uh, a certain uh, you know uh, edge and attitude about him on the offensive line that I think Florida fans are going to be uh, appreciative of. And you know this is going to be an offense under Billy Napier that's really going to want to establish a run and playoff play action. Um, you, you're seeing him do a lot of wide receiver screens also. So I think there are some guys. Ricky Pearsall is another guy who uh, was uh, injured, uh, who has a foot issue, but they're hoping to get him back in time for the Utah opener. As a matter of fact, they're hoping to get him back in practice this week. He was someone, the Arizona State transfer, that really flashed uh, that first week of camp and really looked good at the receiver position. I think he's versatile. He can play in the slot. He can play a little bit outside, too. He's got really good speed. And I know he was someone that... uh, um, you know, a lot of the we, we were discussing uh, with Rashad Torrance was really high on uh, before he went down with with the foot issue. So uh, he's another guy, too, in terms of a transfer um, and that can make an impact during the season. It's just going to with him, it's just going to be a matter of health and making sure he gets back. Definitely. You know, as I mentioned in the intro, Florida, they open up with a tough schedule. You have Utah who I believe is maybe number seven in some of the polls. You have Kentucky, who beat Florida last year. You have South Florida, who, you know, Florida kind of handled pretty well. But then you have Tennessee, which was another good game last year. So if this was a decade ago, you're looking at a 4-0 start. Nowadays, you'd be happy with, what, maybe 3-1, and 2-2. Two and two. How do you foresee the start of the season going for Florida? Yeah, I think it's, you know, the Utah game is really going to be fascinating because Utah is going to be traveling cross country. You're going to have to deal with the humidity. Now, if it was a 3.30 game, it'd be even more impressive, right? But it's going to be a 7 o'clock game. Um, The game is sold out. Uh, They announced that yesterday, pretty much, save for a few hundred tickets for, I think, uh, group season, but single ticket sales are sold out. So it's going to be an electric atmosphere. I think there's a lot of excitement for the Napier era. 
And, uh, you know, I've been in the swamp before when it's loud like that, and it's going to be really tough, a really tough environment uh, for Utah for sure. So I think that's a fascinating first game. And then you've got a Kentucky team that is uh, certainly improved, uh, but uh, one of their better running backs, uh, Gonzalez, is not going to be in in for that game. Um, So you you might have a chance, um, you know, to start off the season two and out. Um, if, If you're fortunate, you get some breaks. Um, and beat two ranked teams, and that gets you back in the conversation, actually, for top 25. I think going to Tennessee is going to be really tough under Josh Heupel. Um, they've got a lot of momentum for their second year. So, I mean, three and one, two and two, I think you'd be happy with uh, in those first four games uh, under Napier, and then just try to go from there. Yeah, I see that your colleague there at the Gainesville Sun, David Whitley, he's working on a story. I believe it's something to the effect of uh... – what Florida has to do to win eight games, which, you know, obviously Florida fans, that they want 10 games, they want 11 games, they want undefeated, let's face it. But, you know, eight games, how do you see that? Realistic, uh, good bet, bad bet? You know, if you're plunking down some money in Vegas, do you go on the over? Yeah, you know, I think eight is about right. I mean, that's what I predicted also. We have the, uh, you know, our SEC predictions uh, with the group, and they asked us best case, worst case. Uh, best case, I actually had nine and four, and worst case, I had five and seven. Um, but my prediction was eight and five, and uh, that could be maybe eight and five winning the bowl game. It could be without winning the bowl game. But uh, I think there's enough talent on this roster. If they could stay together under Napier uh, and be cohesive enough to, to get to eight wins, I just think that uh, you know they're they're going to have to show improvement during the course of the season. I do think having all those games at home, uh, being comfortable, they could get off to a good start to the year. Um, but I think it will come down to certainly, uh, you know, uh, maintaining that momentum. And I, I do think the more physical teams, uh, the LSUs and certainly Georgia, where Georgia is right now, the defending national champion in Jacksonville, I think those are the teams that are still going to give Florida a little bit of trouble, um, you know, the, those kind of teams. Uh, I do think that, uh, you know, they, they do have the physicality and the talent to really match up with teams like Utah and Kentucky, though. And, and even Tennessee is a team that, isn't really one of those physically imposing teams, uh, you know, that, that you face in the West. Yeah, that's for sure. While Florida is gearing up for this season, obviously they're always looking toward the future with recruiting, with, you know, NIL, you've got the Gator Collective. There are all of these different factors that go into it. And, you know, Napier's hired. He was kind of like the hot coaching prospect. Then recruiting didn't start off all that great. And then it picked up in the last couple of months. So now people are happy with him again. So, you know, when you look at the makeup of this team, just kind of talk about all of those different factors, how difficult it is for a first year coach to come in and just do all of this in this kind of new world of college football. Yeah. And, you know, Napier, it was interesting uh, when he discussed uh, recruiting with us a couple of weeks ago, he said that he's, you know, it's a learning process from him learning how to sell the program. And certainly what helped, uh, you know, certainly this week was the opening of the Heavener Center, the $85 million practice facility. Uh, That certainly will be a boon in recruiting um, we're going to get a tour of it later today and it's got a pool, it's got dining halls, it's got, you know, uh, massage chairs, all sorts of stuff, all sorts of amenities. And it's also connected to the indoor practice facility. So that is certainly something that they can sell to recruits. Um, and when you look at Napier's, um, class right now, I mean, 18 out of 20 are from, um, 
or I, I don't know if it's 18, I think actually it might be 17 out of 20, are from within the state of Florida. So he's really doing a good job in the backyard. He's getting a lot of four-star guys. I think 18 of the 20 are four-stars, actually, uh, which is which is another really high percentage of, of quality players. Hasn't quite got that five-star yet, but it's getting a lot of four-stars, particularly from within the state. Um, so he's doing it. He's doing a good job there, pretty much, you know, in terms of uh, Florida, Georgia. Um, his highest-rated recruit in the 2023 class actually is from Alabama. He's a defensive lineman from outside of Birmingham, uh, who uh, Kelby Collins. So I think they're really high on. He's addressing the line of scrimmage, which is a, a big issue I think with Florida. You got a SEC is a line of scrimmage league, so he's trying to get as many you know physical, athletic, offensive, and defensive linemen as he can. And then, you know, some of the skill positions, too, have got some really nice wide receivers from uh, Andy Jean from Miami and Aiden Mizell from Orlando. So he he's done a good job, I think, and um, I think there's a, a lot to it. And I think NIL in terms of, you know, along with the opening of the facility uh, will factor into recruiting as well. And the Gator Collective uh, has been pretty active in terms of raising funds. And they're, they're really, I think, doing the best they can to navigate this this kind of crazy landscape that we're in um, that, that continues to evolve and, and who knows what's going to happen uh, down the road in the next year or two, uh, if, if the NCA can get congressional involvement or not, or if this is going to continue to you know be the free market basically. Um, but I think Florida will adapt to either situation. Yeah. How dirty can it get between Miami and Florida if nobody gets to step in and, uh, you know, put some governors on this? <laughs> It's 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 nuts. It really is. But it's it's part of, you know, in a way, I think, you know, uh, the time had come for athletes to, uh, you know, be able to monetize off their image and likeness to uh, I, I think this this whole the last 20 or 30 years of college athletics in terms of uh, television and apparel revenue and, and recruiting rankings. I mean, these kids are stars or celebrities now. Um, even coming out of high school, crazy enough, you know, and there's a whole cottage industry spawned in terms of because uh, I think athletes, I think fans of teams, if their teams aren't going well, um, rather than, uh, you know, wanting to address what's wrong with the team, they want to look ahead to what's next. Right. You know, I think that's uh, that's been the, the common theme of, of fans in the last 10 or 20 years. So that's what's made recruiting and looking into recruiting so popular and it's what's uh, certainly made uh you know the, these high level uh, athletes even coming into college celebrities and uh as a result you know they they probably do have a right to do it but there needs to be some regular regulation as well there needs to be some common sense uh kind of uh guidelines and uh, i think the nca is is trying to work with that and trying to work uh if they can get some congressional involvement uh, as well uh, in terms of uh, any kind of regulation, that will certainly help. Yeah, you know, part of the genius behind the NCAA is they've figured out a way for student athletes to get money, yet they still are not shelling out one penny. They've got other people paying for the name, image, and likeness. They're signing these huge TV contracts, but still no money for the kids. So it's an incredible thing that they've got going on there. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting, and you know, you, you can go back to Walter Byers, right? The term "student athlete" was used in the 1970s to uh, not uh, pay disability for players if they got injured. You know, that was, uh, uh, you know, you, you can go that far back uh, in terms of, of of their motivation. So it's it's a uh, it's it's certainly fascinating. But I think with you know Florida, you know, I think they're trying to be nimble through this whole process. 
um, and uh, and do the best they can. And I think certainly, you know, you look at Napier's recruiting class in 2023, and they, they've got one for 2024, too, Miles Graham, who's Ernest Graham's son. I mean, that that makes me feel old because I remember when Ernest Graham was a running back at the, the University of Florida, and he's a very popular guy in the Fort Myers area. So I, I think they're doing a really good job. Um, still attracting the uh, top talent uh, to Gainesville, and, and they certainly have a lot to sell between, you know, this new facility and the game day atmosphere, and and, and certainly the the education that Florida provides as well. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned four star recruits coming to Florida from the state of Florida this year. There are as many four-star athletes from the state as I can remember. I think the list went 80-some deep, which is about as many four-star athletes as you're going to find. And You know, it's getting harder because it used to be, you know, Florida, Florida State, Miami were competing for the kids from the state. And then other people came in to pill for the state in Alabama and Auburn and, you know, some of the other schools. And now you've got UCF who's starting to take away some of these recruits. So it's just getting harder and harder. And, you know, you mentioned the Heavener Center, which is opening up, $85 million facility. You know, I'm just curious because in 2016, Clemson opened their $55 million facility. So you can see what inflation has done to fancy uh, fitness centers. But, you know, is there anything unique to Florida's like Clemson has? Like they have that giant slide that takes players down from the first floor to the second floor. So are you hearing anything interesting like that out of this new facility? Yeah, like the pool, I think, is kind of an interesting concept. The fact that they have this outdoor pool and lounge area. And I think also the, uh, you know, some of those uh, massage chairs. Uh, I'm hearing stories about, uh, you know, certain like very high level treadmills uh, that uh, can be used in the rehab process that are going to be really good. Um, and uh, we'll get to, we'll get to see more of it today. But um, you know, the interesting aspect of it is even though it's a football training facility, there are going to be areas open to all athletes. Uh, so it's really going to help all the athletic, uh, you know, uh, all, all the uh, student athletes at the University of Florida. I think that dining hall that opened and some of the amenities are going to be able to be used by uh, athletes of every sport. And uh, I think that's important, too, because I think some athletic departments uh, more than others uh, kind of foster that kind of collegial atmosphere between all the athletes on campus pulling for one another. Yeah, you know, I, I went to the University of Florida journalism School of Journalism, and I don't remember them ever discussing giving us a pool and lounge area, so I'm a little bit jealous of them. <laughs> you know, getting back to recruiting, though, um, you know, Kirby Smart recently made his feelings known about recruiting and the game that's played in Jacksonville and has been played there for nearly a century, you know, how he doesn't like that you know, he has a few, one fewer home game. It hurts his recruiting. You know, it was complaining from a person who's had top recruiting classes in the last six years, including the number one recruiting class in 2018 and 20. So I don't know how much weight there is to it, but now people are saying that they're going to change this so recruits can come to the Florida-Georgia game in Jacksonville. Have you heard any more on this? Because that wasn't official reports last week, but is that something that it sounds like is going to come down the pipe so that game can stay in Jacksonville, where it's essentially been since 1933, aside from two years in the mid-90s when they were prepping the stadium for the Jaguars? Yeah, um, and they, you know they are, you know, from Florida side, they've been very mum about it, and they said that they're not going to comment uh, on uh, reports that are unsubstantiated. But I know that Georgia's pushing for it hard, um, and it's uh, it's it's an interesting topic, you know, when when you look at it. Um, I could see Kirby's side to it because of the fact that you know Florida is the huge rivalry game for Georgia every year. 
Um, I, I think with Florida, it's it's kind of interesting because I feel like that even though Georgia might be the biggest, I mean, they do have the multiple rivalries. They do have FSU, which is a big rivalry every year. They do have uh, Tennessee, which they consider a big rival every year. LSU, that they play every year, the cross game in the West, they consider a big rivalry game. So they, I think they have more games than Georgia to showcase recruits at home. And uh, maybe that's why Georgia is more sour on it than Florida, because I, I think Florida really has multiple options. And they have such a great game day atmosphere at the swamp that they feel like, do they really need, you know, to, you know, show, whereas I think Georgia is a little bit more like does Georgia, Georgia Tech. I mean, is that something that uh, really uh, kind of moves the needle and allows recruits? I guess that's not as big a game as it used to be. So. Um, maybe maybe I could see Georgia's side of Kirby's ire to more than Florida's side to it. Now Florida might not need it because they have so many other games that they can they can sell. Yeah, and I believe they're if they haven't signed it, they recently signed or are going to sign an extension that will keep that game in Jacksonville. I think it's till twenty twenty five or six, whichever it is. But you know, I'm sure there will probably be a two year period later in the twenty twenties where it's going to have to return to the Gainesville and the Georgia campuses at least one year each because they're looking to put some seven or $800 million in renovations in the TIA field there for the Jacksonville Jaguars. So, you know, we'll kind of keep an eye on how that goes. But, you know, it's here for the next few years. And Kirby, you know, I don't think anybody's going to feel too bad for him given what the success he's had. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think it will be cool, though, to do it like once, like, you know, during that time, you know, to, to be able to go up to Sanford Stadium in Athens. And I remember, I guess, you know, in the 1990s when Spurrier went up there, right, it was uh, kind of the, the Ray Goff era and Georgia was struggling. And it shows you how cyclical these rivalries are. And he uh, he kind of, you know, uh, joked about, you know, wanting to put 50 uh, up in Sanford Field. And by golly, he did it. You know what I mean? During the game. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, they, uh, they certainly had a, a big game that game, uh, that day being able to play up at, uh, Sanford stadium in Georgia, but it, it'll be cool to go up there again, uh, you know, in, in five years, if they do the renovations uh, during that time. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that. I, I actually oversee the Jacksonville newspaper. So the, the times, the Florida times union in Jacksonville, and, you know, we've got great Jaguars coverage there, but it'll also be cool to see that stadium getting upgraded because, it really needs it first and foremost. It needs some shade. It needs some help. Uh, but, you know, structurally it's sound, so they're not going to give them a new stadium like the Buffalo Bills needed, which cost some $1.3 billion. So let's hope that they can get that worked out because I know that they did a fan survey to hear all of the different things that they would like with that stadium, taking into even consideration that that Florida-Georgia game is once a year like that. So it'll be cool if they can get TIA fixed up and, and you know, being a, a top-notch facility like a lot of the other NFL facilities and then that game will probably become a lot more desirable to Florida and Georgia, I would think. Yeah. And uh, by the way, speaking of uh, Jacksonville, tremendous job today by Gene Fernand. I was reading the Patrick Young story and uh, that just breaks your heart. I covered Patrick, you know, when I was a you know basketball beat writer for the Gators uh, during my first stint. Uh, great kid. One of, the, one of the few kids that actually thanked me for doing a story on him, sent me an email uh, back in 2010 and I always knew that he would have a career like in journalism because I know he's worked for the SEC Network and he does podcasts because uh, he's just such a well-spoken kid and personable and bright. And uh, he's carrying a tremendously positive attitude into this, uh, you know, this this terrible, uh, you know, uh, situation uh, getting into the uh, car accident. But he's being thankful that he survived it and that, uh, 
you know, going forward, he seems like he's determined to uh, to walk again and is wiggling his toes and is going to rehab. And uh, we're, we're hoping, certainly hoping for the best for him. Yeah, definitely. Uh, for those who haven't checked that story out, it's by Gene Frenette. His last name is F-R-E-N-E-T-T-E. And he did a very lengthy interview this past weekend with Patrick Young, who, for those who don't know the details, was in a terrible car accident, he, or a truck accident, technically. He's six foot ten. He broke his spine. He was in a Denver hospital for some, you know, more than a month. And now he's back in Jacksonville. They're they're giving him some specialized care and, and a place to live. And y- you have to read the story. You have to read how his fiance, you know, they were getting ready to get married. And instead of them being able to get married in front of 200 people 10 days after his accident while he's paralyzed, she still married him in the hospital. So it's a beautiful story. You have to definitely check it out. And it should be on every one of the uh, USA Today Network properties in Florida, including the Times Union, including the Gainesville Sun and other properties. So thanks for bringing that up. Kevin, because that was a spectacular story by Gene Frenette. Yeah, I was reading it right before the podcast, and uh, it was uh, tremendous, tremendously well done. And uh, yeah, Patrick was a uh, one of the great Gators of that 2014 Final Four team that really went to three Elite Eights before then, and and finally broke through. And um, certainly was uh, you know like a you know, we'll go down as is you know not not many Florida basketball teams are only five that have been to a Final Four. Um, and he's uh, part of that group. So uh, certainly, uh, definitely, uh, you know, a, a, a great, uh, you know, uh, a player and a great legend at uh, UF and, and was always a great ambassador at UF as well. Yeah, and boy, that game, I, I still look back at that Final Four game and think the Gators could have won, but we could we could relive that uh, another time. <laughs> so, Kevin, you know, before we let you go, I want to learn a little bit about you. You joined the Gainesville Sun just a little bit, about a, a month, month and a half ago. You know, you hit the ground running. So why don't you tell the people a little bit about your background? I heard you say you're, you know, a journalism student from the University of Miami, so love to hear about a hurricane up in Gator territory. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, that's always interesting. And so, you know, there were times when I kept that hidden, but I think people know now and they, they give me some ribbing about it. But uh, I actually, um, you know, uh, was was born and raised in uh, New York, uh, you know, grew up a uh, huge baseball guy, huge Mets fan. I was born in Queens. I grew up in a, a suburb, uh, suffered New York, Rockland County, um, then decided to go south, went to school at the University of Miami uh, for four years. And then most of my career uh, took me in Florida. I started out at uh, uh, a small paper, the Key West Citizen in Key West, Florida, doing the daily fishing report, living the life in my 20s. Uh, certainly, uh, yeah, I could have been stuck in much worse small towns, right? Um, and uh, covered some outdoors there, high school baseball, Key West High School had some great baseball programs uh, in the 90s. And then I moved on uh, briefly to uh, Fort Walton Beach, which is currently a Gannett property now, and worked for them for close to a year, and then worked in four years in Naples, another Gannett a newspaper uh, where I did uh, some spring training covering the Red Sox, the Minnesota Twins, did some college football there, University of Miami, Florida, and Florida State stuff. And, th- and then, you know, in 2003, got my first big break, um, uh, you know, joining the Gainesville Sun and covering the uh, Gator basketball team um, through their national championship run uh, while also assisting in football. So this is actually my second tour of duty in Gainesville. I was, I was with the Sun from 2003 to about 2019, uh, then left to cover the Indiana Hoosiers uh, for a group of newspapers, CNHI in uh, Indiana, which included Anderson, Terho, Kokomo. Uh, living in the Midwest for three years was an interesting experience and certainly had to go through the pandemic up there a little bit, but uh, also uh, gained uh, gained some appreciation for uh, 
Big Ten and Indiana basketball and Indiana football actually had a, a nice little run as well with Tom Allen. They went to the Gator Bowl one year in uh, 2020, 2019, 2020, um, and uh, the Outback Bowl the year after that. Uh, but it, it's great to be back in Florida, close to family and friends here. Most of my career has been here. I feel like I know the state and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing to, uh, you know, just provide great coverage for the chain of papers throughout the state. Uh, that's great. And we're definitely happy to have you back. And, you know, I, I keep waiting for Gannett to buy the Key West Citizen because that would be my retirement plan. That's how I want to sunset being the sports editor down there in Key West because I love it down there. Me too. I was a sports editor in Key West for what? I think it was about uh, two years, actually. And uh, it was uh, it was it was always interesting down there. There are always uh, interesting people to write about. Uh, you know, so many people that, uh, you know, that the joke is, uh, you know, if you turn the you if they, you turn the United States on its side, everything kind of filters down uh, to Florida and specifically to Key West. So you uh, you run into some interesting characters down there for sure. Uh, here's a useless tidbit of information for you. At the turn of the century, from the 1800s into the 1900s, Key West was actually the most populated city in the state of Florida at about 20,000 people. At the time, Miami had less than 5,000. So as uh, Henry Flagler worked his railroad down there, he was heading toward the most populated city in the state of Florida. So there's my useless tidbit of information for you, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating when you go down there and the whole Conquer Republic and the uh you know the history of like the, the shipwreck museum down there and and everything that uh you know and certainly hemingway and literature and the culture down there and i've not been back there since 2004 i think was the last time i was down there and um i think that uh i hear it's changed a lot i hear it's a lot more commercialized um like everything else they've paved a lot of things over um i know in the 90s when i was down there there was a lot of resistance to that but uh it's it's hard to, uh, you know, uh, curtail progress. I mean, even Gainesville has changed in the three years that I left uh, in terms of the development here as well. Uh, it's become a much, uh, much bigger, much uh, denser place than it was when I left. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. And you, you certainly you can't stop the dollars of progress, even in a pristine place like Key West. But, you know, maybe instead of the sports editor, I'll learn some sort of odd skill so I can just perform in Mallory Square. So. Yeah, exactly. Like there used to be the guy that uh, I guess he had the uh, flaming rings with the cats. The cats used to jump off the flaming rings. And then you had, uh, I think there was another guy, Love 22. I wonder if he's still around. He used to hand out the $22 bills. And uh, yeah, there were some, some interesting folks down there. Looks like we need to start the Key West Memories podcast, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I, can right, tell well, you some crazy, I can tell you some crazier stories, but uh, you know, th those might be off the air. <laughs> Either that or they'd be highly rated shows. <laughs> well, Kevin, is there anything else, you know, getting back to the Gators that we haven't talked about that you wanted to uh, convey before I let you go? Yeah, no, we're just really excited for game week and, uh, you know, have some stories in the hopper, one of which, you know, we discussed NIL and um, we got some interesting opinions from some former players, uh, uh, former Gator greats from the past, uh, Brandon Seiler, Kevin Carter, and uh, Trey Burton about uh, the opportunities for today's athletes in NIL, which I think will be an interesting read. And uh, also, uh, you know, plenty of stuff uh, leading into game week. I have some ideas about writing some stories about uh, Patrick Tony's new defense, the Creeper defense, and um, obviously something big on Anthony Richardson and him continuing to evolve as a leader, uh, which is certainly, a, a, I think, a big theme, you know, because 
we know he has the talent. I think it's a matter of him just, you know, being responsible and, uh, you know, being able to, uh, you know, have a group of guys that believe in him uh, when he's leading them down the field. Well, I can't wait to get this season kicked off. And Kevin, we can find all of your great work for the Gainesville Sun at Gainesville.com and at Gatorsports.com. Kevin, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's great to have you on board, and we look forward to more of your coverage. All right. Thank you, Tim. All right. And that's going to do it for this episode of the State of Florida Sports Podcast. I'm Tim Walters. And to quote Gators legend Steve Spurrier, I'm not one to say no comment, whether I'm right or wrong, but especially if I am right. Still one of the greatest quote machines of all time. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.